You're listening to the Talking Forest Podcast with your host, Kendra Burns. In today's world, it's important to communicate your story online, and Kendra can help you by diving into social media and providing you with free tips and insights on how to build your organic social media following and shine online. Having been raised low income, first in her family to go to college, and a proud international military spouse, Kendra develops creative media content across many social media platforms from anywhere in the world. Her inspiration comes from the people who give her hope and believe in her so she can believe in you. Follow the Talking Forest podcast today to see how she lives the dream of a traveling virtual entrepreneur and get your tech tips as we keep up with the latest on social media. Hi, and welcome to the Talking Forest podcast. This is episode number 18 with Cassie Bot. Baxter. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be here. So I'm excited about Cassie. Uh, She reached out to me in about November, and I have been kind of following along with what she's been up to. And she has some great uh, background. She has a background with a bachelor's of science in environmental and resource science from Trent University, specializing in indigenous environmental studies. She also studied abroad in Norway at Sungol University College in 2011 and University of Terrasmo in 2012. So her current job, she works as a biologist at an engineering and environmental consulting firm and loves it right now. She's an ecologist with over five years of experience in the environmental field, including forest management planning, species at risk assessments, and environmental impact studies. Her field experience includes forest inventory, field survey for vegetation, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and ecological classifications. She has also completed species at risk surveys for Blanding's turtle, Whitpoorwill, barn swallow, bank swallow, eastern meadowlark, and SAR vegetation. Her past experience includes preparing fish and wildlife license and species at risk permit applications to the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry Environmental Impact Studies, Natural Heritage Evaluations, and Forest Management Plans. She also has extensive experience working in Indigenous communities, conducting consultation on resource projects, land use planning, environmental assessments, and traditional knowledge studies. It is my pleasure to talk to you today, and I'm very excited to get to know you a little bit more, Cassie. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. You're very welcome. So I was going to ask you, what was your first job, and do you have any good memories of it? And it could be not forestry-related and then forestry-related. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing just because my first job was actually... It wasn't so much forestry-related, but plant-related. My uh, my mom, growing up, had a uh, greenhouse. So my first job was working with her in her greenhouse and, you know, getting to know plants, caring for plants, and uh, I loved it. So um, I have very fond memories of spending time with her and, you know, taking care of tons of different types of plants and asking all sorts of questions about, you know, what does this plant do and what does this plant do? And um, for some context, my mom is a, she's a forest technician and an arborist and we've always, you know, she taught me a lot about plants and kind of, we kind of share the same love of plants as well. So um, my first 
forestry job was working. I lived out west a couple of years ago from 2014 to 2016. Um, I was out with my, my husband had a job as a teacher out there and I was, you know, I have kind of a non-traditional background in terms of for forestry specifically. And I had an ecology background and I was out west being like, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, trying to find a job and I ended up kind of accidentally going in the forestry and I loved it. Um, I worked for Telco Industries as a forestry coordinator, so I um, was responsible for doing forest management planning and did some field work, um, did some silviculture stuff as well, and it was a, it was a really great first experience and exposure to what forestry is and you know how the industry works. Definitely. And so it's really nice that you had your hands in the earth as you were growing. And so you kind of had that connection early on. And it's really awesome that you're literally taking care of some of the species that we mentioned in your bio. So I'm excited to get to know more. What is your current forestry role right now? Um, so a lot of my forestry work currently is actually volunteer. Um, I'm working professionally as a biologist for an environmental consulting firm. So I do some forestry related stuff, you know, in terms of land use planning and that. But um, my volunteer stuff right now is I'm a, on the, I'm a member of the local citizens committee for the Nipissing Forest, which is um, sort of the citizens group that helps uh, manage the local forest in the area in which I live and I love it it's it's so much fun you know we it's such an interesting venue where you get to see um, so many different uses and not necessarily competing interests but you know, it's a group, we're a group of people, there's trappers, there's hunters, there's um, silviculture contractor representatives, I represent the public, um, and we recently have been through a, so every 10 years in Ontario, um, a forest has to develop a new forest management plan that kind of outlines how they're going to manage the forest over the next 10 years, and this year from the Nipissing Forest was a forest planning year, so we were going through the whole process and updating the plan. And um, so we had lots of extra meetings. And it was really interesting to see sort of the balancing act between, you know, things that you, at first seemed like competing interests. Um, and say, as an example, um, the buffer that you're going to put on a particular value, say, a canoe route. Um, versus different interests in terms of, you know, what does the industry need and, you know, what would benefit canoeists and, you know, versus the ecological interest, you know. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Nice. And I think that really helps give a balanced um, role in the, the fact that I think you've followed the environmental impact of all these different types of species I like that you have the well-rounded education in that you've not only had the forestry, but you've also done ecology work and being a biologist means that you get to work with wildlife. So I think you have a very inclusive, not only education, but experience now that you've been working. And so uh, what do you think 
your biggest accomplishment is so far? I'm pretty proud of the fact that I have been able to do the type of work that I do. So when I was in school, I worked really hard to get as much experience as I as I could as possible. My university was great for um, encouraging their their classes to do field work and provided lots of field work opportunities. But I, you know, I worked really hard. I wanted to get as wide and as diverse experience that as I possibly could, and I did it. And it was, you know, through my internships and summer jobs, I ended up I set a goal to work to get experience in government with a non-governmental organization um, in the industry as well, and I was able to accomplish that, which I think was pretty cool. And my my favorite, or the professional accomplishment that I'm most proud of was when I was out west working for TOPO. Um, I was involved in a lot of forest management planning and helped to... Um, provide input into a lot of the forest management plans that they were writing for the local forest, and I think that was my favorite accomplishment that I've done so far. So when you're sitting around a table with a bunch of people and you're making decisions and actually putting things in writing, you know, I think that's when you know you've made it. And I remember being an assistant in a forest policy office, and I got to see conversations you really know you've made it in in a career when you educate yourself and you do it as well-rounded as you have, and then you're sitting at a table actually writing and thinking, wordsmithing, and getting those forest plans out. I think that's amazing work. And and also doing the work, too. You know, like, uh, the thing I seem to enjoy the most and uh, I'm told that I'm good at is taking something, you know, taking out something like a forest prescription or, you know, a policy and actually making it operable in terms of um, for industry. You know, a lot of the work I do for, my, for the company I'm working for right now, you know, we are given a certain, you know, we have to meet certain objectives under our, our planning process. And, you know, we're, we're asked to do something, but and then we, we look at it and go, okay, how is this actually going to work? You know, how can I make this, you know, as an example, one of our objectives, you know, because a lot of stuff I do right now is with highways and bridges, and we have an objective to protect burn solo nests wherever possible, given that they nest on bridges, you know, so it's there can be conflict there, and, you know, how do we develop netting systems to exclude barn swallows and protect them during construction. You know, how do we write plans so that we can hand to a um, contractor, like a construction company, that they're going to be able to understand and implement and it's not, you know, with too much jargon and, you know, so learning how they think and what they what their needs are has been a big part of my job and then learning the engineering sort of aspect of it and seeing what's know what their language is and what they actually mean when they say something and um, meaning what their needs are has been important I think in what I'm doing and I don't I don't ever think that I think construction or development or forestry even done well it doesn't have to be a conflict between your an ecological value and a economic value they can coexist um, it just takes a little bit of critical thinking and sometimes some thinking outside the box to get something that will work. Yeah, definitely. So you're working 
with everyone else and bringing in all the different solutions and working through the challenges, especially around the table. And it's really nice that you have witnessed the, the balance that you're speaking of because there are people who are still skeptical. And, you know, it's not always possible. Um, sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of a situation recently through the uh, local citizens committee that we were talking about a particular issue and we kind of, we came to a compromise that nobody was happy with. <laughs> but it was kind of, it was the best that we, you know, we could do and uh, it was the least bad of the options that we had available but it still met most of the objectives that we are trying to achieve and it's not uh, unfortunately it'd be great in an ideal world if you can make everybody happy all the time but it's just not always possible so I think you know aiming for the least bad (laughs) yeah a good backup option so you went for the lesser of the evil as a group yeah, we did. Wow. I think that's interesting. So, do you consider yourself introverted or extroverted? And how do you think your personality plays with what the the work that you're doing or the people that you work with? Um, I like to say I'm an extroverted introvert. I like, I like working with people. I like talking to people. But in terms of recharging... Um, and you know, getting my energy back, I definitely am in it. Uh, need to be alone for a particular periods of time. Um, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely a heavy thinker. You know, I think about things a lot, and I like understanding a bunch of different things and pulling them together to make my own decisions. So I think it, it can be um, interesting sometimes for you know, like the engineering folks that I talk to, they they don't, as I've been told recently, they don't often get people from different disciplines trying to understand what they're doing and, you know, why, you know, what are their needs and objectives. But in my mind, I think I try to work collaboratively with people in terms of starting from, you know, what are our common interests? You know, how does your process work? Um, what do you, you know, what are your, what do you as a group, I'm thinking the engineer, measured on, you know, what drives you, what are your goals, Um, and then try and then see how, you know, and I have the opposite, you know, I have my own, you know, being a biologist, I have species to protect and um, objectives in terms of the environmental stuff that I'm trying to achieve, but, you know, where, you know, and then I can understand where the common ground is, you know, where can we work together, you know, where can we make it so that the objectives I'm trying to achieve aren't actually going to be a hindrance to, you know, as an example, um, as a lot of what we do right now is stealing fish, fish passage through culverts. Yeah. And it can, it can be interesting, you know, to talking to different engineers, it's interesting because they don't, some of them are really good with it and some of them are not. And I don't think... It, it's become a, a bigger issue in recent years, and there's been more focus on it. So I think it's also an education piece yeah. about, you know, this is what we're doing, this is why we need to do it. These are, because we're, you know, it's driven by law, like as an example, the Fisheries Act in, in Canada um, says we have to do, you know, you, have, you cannot do serious harm to fish in fish habitat, and that has specific meanings depending on what you're doing. but. Um, but I think starting with what they need is a good approach because, 
an outsider's perspective and saying, you, you know, you must do this and this and this. I've actually taken the time to understand and try and make it so it's as easy as possible to implement. So I have a question then from what you're talking about. I'm gathering that at times you might have to challenge someone's ideals. Have you ever been able to ask someone a question while you're planning uh, some of the more practical mindset where they just do their work, they do it all the time, they're used to doing it a certain way, and have you ever shocked anyone and let them know, not necessarily as a biologist, you can't tell them that they can't do their work, but have you ever showed someone in a in a work fo- environment or maybe a meeting that you were in where the work that they have been doing historically can't be done in that way, we have to change it for our species? Yeah, so I was working with a contractor um, last year, or two years ago, recently anyway, in the past couple of years, and this company had always done things, it was, again, going back to the, the fish stuff, you know, they had always done things a certain way, and, you know, fish passage and protecting fish hadn't necessarily always been at the forefront of their mind, and, you know, I was working directly for them, so it, it's is an interesting position because yes they were paying me but I was also they were also paying me to protect their interests you know and I was providing them advice on what they you know some to change some of their practices around you know how they were doing fish removals and um, you know some of the restoration that they were doing you know once they were done constructing the culvert and I had the foreman in the group, he, you know, we've been, we've been going back and forth for a while, and I was trying to explain to him, you know, why he should be doing these things. And he's like, well, we've always done it this way. And I'm like, well, you know, you have to do it this way. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wasn't it, you know, you know, we were having respectful differences of opinion, and I finally got in my head, I'm like, what's the benefit for them? You know, what, why, and it can be a characteristic, you know, yeah. what's the, the perceived benefit for them? And I find this as a person, like, this, doing this kind of stuff is what's going to give you, there's two things here, right? Like, this is going to give you your social license to operate, you know, doing this ahead of time and being proactive about it. You're not going to have your contract administrator writing up all the documentation and, uh, you know, finding deficiencies in what you're doing. Um, you know, you as a company can point to this as an example in terms of like living out your environmental stewardship values that are directly like on your company website. Um, not they were doing anything particularly bad. They were just, you know, was, I was trying to get them to change to something better. And yeah. then I, I, you know, so that was kind of the carrot. And then the stick is I'm like, listen, <laughs> I'm not doing this. I'm not telling you to do all this because it's, you know, in terms of you don't want to get the fine, right? Yeah. Because the enforcement of it had changed. And I'm like, listen, you don't want to get the fine. You don't want to have an investigation started. You know, it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. And it's going to push back your schedule. And I think as soon as I was able to translate it into values and, you know, sort of things like their goals and what they're measured on, they were like, oh, oh, (laughs) I'm like, there you go, you know. This is going to save you time and money in the long run to do it right the first time. Um, Just Um, learning some of the first parts about what you've been doing and even reading in in your bio, I kind of gathered that this might be something in the generation that we're in now that we've 
had to do because I've worked with a lot of people that always have this practical mindset of just doing work. Um, I get caught up in my own kind of just work mode. I call it like being a robot where it's just what you've done. And so I think what your, your work is doing is helping other people realize that they can build structures, but they need to be tweaked a little bit for the common problems that are going on today. And it's often, you know, yes, some of it is a drastic change from historically from what people or companies have done, but some of it isn't, you know, some of it is just looking like it, I'm working on, actually right now I'm working on a project for a culvert and um, we were actually able to save the contractor money on the uh, material that they had to put back into the stream for the, the fish um, and shorten their schedule. So it, they would be in the water less, which is always a good thing, both for the fish in terms of them. Um, and, you know, we brought that to the designer, and the di- designer, you know, the engineering consultant was like, great, cool, you know, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so it, it doesn't always have to be, we're going to cost you more time and more money. Sometimes, yes, you know, depending on the objective that we're trying to achieve. But I think in the long run, um it does make everything better <laughs> to do it right the first time. Yeah, and especially since they're engineering a structure that could be in place for a few hundred years. Yeah, exactly right. D- I, don't, um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what the lifespans on our culverts are. I'll have to go look that up. Yeah, it depends. And in the states, in the United States, they're also working on a similar project. Um, I worked in an association three years ago where I learned that the upper stream, most of the industrial private landowners had to replace the culverts. And so they were incentivized by the Department of Natural Resources and they used the program, uh, Family Forest and Fish Passage Program to actually replace the culverts before the local government. So we're 10 years later from when they started um, some of the planning process for culverts and the Department of Transportation is just now getting to planning and actually doing the work. And it's interesting to watch people, the public, kind of see what's going on because especially in the local communities, uh, the upstream people don't see as much. And so downstream, when they start doing the work on the roads that people are driving and replacing culverts and it creates traffic or, you know, the part of the road is blocked for an uncertain amount of time, that's when the public gets involved. And so I think that we should have been educating the public before the work was done, but we're not there yet in outreach in um, the industry. No, I think that's one thing that I'm always thinking about, you know, in terms of outreach and and getting people to understand that that what we're doing and why we're doing it and why we're putting this type of culvert in versus this type of culvert, you know, whether it be a box culvert versus a a pipe or something. And, you know, and that's a lot of what I'm thinking about now in terms of wherever possible, you know, I do adult (laughs) public outreach. Yeah, you know, we often have landowners, you know, a lot of the, you know, I'm in Northern Ontario, uh, so a lot of the work that I end up doing is um, in rural areas on smaller highways, and, 
adjacent to landowners and we often get curious landowners who come over and you know ask us what we're doing <laughs> and why we're looking like ghostbusters in the in the creek just for some context uh in part of our studies we use an electrofisher yeah um to stun the fish so <laughs> you can you know somebody's kind of like close to your front yard and you're like what the heck are they doing <laughs> you know so we talk about what we're doing and why and you know what we're studying and that's Thing. But how did, you know, that's one of the things I've been grappling with is, you know, how how can we do that on a larger scale? And it's really interesting to see kind of the work that you guys are doing and, you know, what you are talking about previously with Forest Proud. And I think that's really cool and has lots of potential, so. Yeah, it's a bigger outreach and we're actually targeting people like Mike Rowe. So that way we can get out the information in a way that resonates with people and people that have already resonated. So I also work with uh, Choose Outdoors and they have an initiative with Chuck Lavelle, who's a keyboard artist for the Rolling Stones. And he has a tree farm in Georgia. Cool. So it's really nice that we're all now connected and our message will not only be sent by some ambassadors like Mike Rowe and Chuck Lavelle, but then that people actually resonate with those I wouldn't say well-known public figures. Public figures, exactly. I think the information and what you're talking about and things that you've been thinking about, I think they're going to happen. It's just going to be a matter of a few years of uh, larger outreach and helping people realize what we actually do. And all I learned by working with tree farmers that all tree farmers, they all have all different plans and they don't have the monoculture that people are used to. Speaking of outreach... What is your favorite social media platform and how have you been using it to to help people bring awareness around the work that you've been doing? <laughs> I have to admit, I'm a bit of a uh, old school millennial. I only have one social media platform and that's Facebook. Um, <laughs> but I, mind you, I also have a LinkedIn profile, but I don't use it much. Um, for me, Facebook has been kind of the focus of what I've been doing um, we're both members of a group called Women in Wood, um, which is an awesome organization of women who work in forestry or, or forestry adjacent, like me. Um, so th- I found that's been really helpful, you know, to share ideas and, and different content and um, see what people are up to and what they're doing. Um, in terms of my own personal stuff, I've been, you know, if I see something cool, I'll share it. Um, and I know I've had several people mention to me, oh, I didn't realize this about forestry or, you know, I didn't realize this about forestry. Yeah, I think that you're still able to reach people in a way that might educate them. And it is interesting to hear what people don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's, I think, the biggest challenge, I think, right now, even in, you know, forestry and sort of environmental are focused around construction, you know, trying to get the message out there that we're, you know, I'm yes, I'm a biologist, and yes, I also work for industry, and those two are not necessarily always conflicting things. You know, we, yeah. we industry can do, and has done, you know, I've experienced that firsthand working for Tolco, you know, does do great work, and, um, you know, share, and often what you hear shared is, you know, the bad news stories of things that aren't done well. Um, but I think we, there, 
I enjoy when, you know, you hear the good news stories. And I think we need to do more sharing. I think the, and, con- the construction industry has been inserted into forest industry recently through cross-laminated timber and the building with wood movement. And maybe now that we're talking, I'm getting the ideas that we also need to move construction into the engineering and the infrastructure because we need better infrastructure in our future. And whether... Yeah, I think infrastructure, you know, the sort of like old school infrastructure thinking it, it it's hard it's hard to push up against right because there's so much innovation going on like you were saying with the uh, you know building with wood and it would I see so many opportunities where it'd be really cool to build something with wood in terms of bridges and you know different structures and even like to do cul- design a culvert differently but it's often challenging you know because a lot of the work I do is government funded yeah so you're within so the confines of that we're working within the confines of you know our our client ministry Ontario Ministry of Transportation and you know will they go for this new innovative thing or are they going to stick with the thing that has worked for them for 50 years so I think the challenge is the thing that's worked for them for 50 years may not work into the future you know in terms of things like climate change and you know changing environment like a lot of the I was amazed to learn recently how much goes into building a culvert you know in terms of the design and drainage but drainage is something that's interesting too because the drainage models that I've looked at you know they do they do take climate change into account but you know we're designing culverts in going into an unknown future you know how are these going to be able to handle uh, you know the extreme weather events that we're going to be and have been and going to be experiencing more of um so yeah. i think the thing that's lacking particularly from the infrastructure industry and you know language is the idea of resiliency you know yes. how are we going to make our system resilient to climate change because you know we're kind of past the prevention or mitigation point unfortunately I think for a lot of things so you know now we're talking about resiliency and and adaption and how do we build that sort of you know from the ground up literally from you know how are we going to protect the stream bed you know from flash flood events um, to looking at how the culvert can handle different water flows or you know in terms of bridges you know looking at how much concrete they're using which you know, if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions of wood versus concrete, oh, I could talk about that for days. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's way different. Also making it practical, right? Like, I would be sure it would be really interesting if somebody could build a culvert out of wood. I'd be all for that. But, you know, I haven't seen a good design yet. <laughs> but yeah. I think there's lots of opportunities with, uh, with bridges to, to look at things and do things differently. It just, it, it's going to... Unfortunately, the bureaucracy moves at a glacial pace, and I'm I'm hopeful. Like I'm an optimist, I'm hopeful they'll they'll catch up. But yeah, I think you and I are also the same in that we're always looking for innovative companies that are already doing the work in the moving forward phase, or companies that can move forward because there are definitely structures out there that need to be 
fixed or thought of differently for the future and the way that we built it 50 years ago may not may not be sustainable and so you you brought in a few words about um, resiliency adaptability and I also think that we need to be sustainable as well yeah so I can like it and I think the company I'm working for is doing some really cool and interesting work around that kind of stuff like um, I was involved in a project recently where we had a 50-year-old culvert that needed to be replaced, and the original design that was proposed, you know, the, the, the government comes and says, well, we were thinking initially you could do this, you know, in terms of this specific culvert design, um, was kind of the, the same old, same old, you know, it was a box culvert. Um, but the, the constraint and challenge at this particular site was it's connected directly to Lake Superior, and there was um, cold water and salmon species spawning directly at the culvert, you know, and there was spawning habitat upstream. And the engineers, actually, who I was working with were great, and they were like, well, you know, we noticed that there was fish, um, and, you know, you've identified these constraints. What if we did things a little differently? And they were actually able to make it so that they changed the culvert design. It's no longer a box culvert, it's an open-foot culvert which um, means that the habitat, you know, with the box culvert, they're covering up the stream bed directly underneath the culvert, which can't, which is removing fish habitat. So now they've changed the design to an open foot, uh, an open foot culvert. So they're actually protecting, and it, we are actually enhancing the habitat that's underneath. Wow. And creating more habitat. Um, and, you know, they brought the design back to the Ministry of Transportation. The Ministry was like, whoa what's this and you know they walk the engineers walk them through them they're like hey you're gonna have way less fisheries impacts you're gonna have the you know your construction timeline is shorter because you're not doing as much in-water work there was actually they went from having i think like two weeks of in-water work required to nothing wow they're able to use the existing structure um and then i guess through their construction staging they're able to not need, you know, by water work, I mean, you know, they're actually damming off the stream to be able to work in the area, um, which can have an impact to fish and fish habitat. So it, it was kind of a win-win-win all around, and I was like, that's cool. Yeah. You know, and it was actually cheaper than the original option that the ministry had proposed. So, so you can support those options and those ideas and try to get them out there, and then I think centered around that, I think if we had the outreach to in the the system in place when something like that is created, I think then we'd be able to, I'm thinking in a future tense, then we'd be able to not only kind of foster people that have all these ideas and actually work with designers, but we'd also be able to have a system in place to promote those ideas. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Um, and, you know, we're always looking to do more of that kind of thing in terms of the, the company that I'm working for. Um, the challenge remains, you know, you have to have a receptive project manager on the government side. And that's where we were talking before about, you know, the glacial change of bureaucracy. You know, getting them on board is, remains to be the challenge for, you know, we were yeah. able to get the project manager on board with that one. But uh, other things, you know, we've had other projects where we've proposed things and it's, nope, we're not doing that. And I'm like, oh, really? 
<laughs> yeah, so that's the hard part. So through all these years and uh, the hobbies and your volunteering, your jobs that you've worked at, who who are you looking up to? Who are your role models in this industry or maybe outside the industry right now? Um, I've been really lucky um, to have role models all the way through from the from when even when I was growing up, like my mom, she works in forestry um, and has worked in forestry for a long time, and you know, sort of, but also in non-traditional roles, and she's been an amazing role model to me. Um, I've, you know, I had a when I was working at Toco, I had an excellent mentor. He was he was my um, I was a forester in training, and he was my supervising forester, and he was awesome and taught me a lot of what I know about industrial forestry and you know I've it, and it's been interesting because I've had both formal and informal mentorship through school and you know different aspects of you know the different jobs and it, it's it's been awesome I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of really great people and you know male and female alike you know like I've had some excellent female role models and I've also had some excellent male role models and um, I think a lot of the work the work that Women in Wood is doing as well is super cool you know providing mentorship to different people and you know giving people the opportunity to meet like-minded people as well so yeah absolutely it's it's nice to have that in your family and same for me except for uh, I was born in a logging community and so I had to kind of dig deep and ask my family what they thought of the environmental side. And it was nice to hear from my stepdad, who's been driving truck for 40 years. He's been trucking the wood in, you know, the logs in and out of the woods. And I, I've had some frank conversation with him asking him what he thinks of some of the practices and what goes on. And I distinctly remember him having a conversation with me that he didn't like it when some of the trees, um, he would see a helicopter and it would just drop all this, you know, liquid substance. And then he'd ask the guys on the radio what it was and they'd say, you know, some chemical and he'd just be like, why? This is just insane. Like, <laughs> even he was, you know, skeptical and it was just interesting to grow up with. You can even see the Olympic National Forest, the foothills, if you go look at a picture from the 80s and now, we have more trees now in the foothills than we did 20 years ago. Awesome. So it's it's regrowing and it's better. And, you know, the practices that even log truck drivers see, like my stepdad, he wasn't even okay with it. So, and then like you're saying, the culvert replacement projects, um, several of those have been going on upstream for the past 10 years and now they're going on downstream. And so... Yep. We're dealing with whatever the public has to say, and I think the work that you're doing in Canada is very similar. And it's nice to hear that we're, you know, working side by side, but in different countries. Yeah, and even in different, you know, sort of. I don't work directly in forestry at the moment. I'd I'd love to go back someday if the right opportunity came up. It, I feel like the lot of skills I learned from working in industrial forestry, you know, for a licensee. Um, come to play in the work that I'm doing now, you know, talking to the, you know, talking to stakeholders, talking to the government, you know, developing plans, you know, I'm, I used to develop plans for 
forestry and now I develop plans for building culverts. <laughs> you know, but the, yeah. the, the, the principles uh, are the same. The ecological principles might be slightly different because you're talking about forest versus, you know, hydrology and fish. Then, but the, the values are still the same. You know, how do we protect and enhance something as much as we can with the work that we're doing? So, And I think the other interesting thing is um, a lot of the culverts that are being replaced in Ontario right now aren't, you know, they're 50, 50, 60, 70 years old, and we're put in at a time where fish and fish passage wasn't necessarily uh, uh, even a thought, you know, it was definitely not at the forefront of what they were doing. And, you know, now with the framework that we have, you know, you know, we're trying to provide, you know, some of these upstream watersheds have been cut off for 50 years, you yeah. know, in terms of fish being able to get further upstream into their watersheds, and so it's interesting to be able to provide that access work where we can, you know. So then do you guys keep electronic records of uh, where the last fish is, or that's what they call it here, is finding the the last fish that's upstream, or they, they assume to think um, where the fish may, may be. And then the record of, uh, before putting a culvert in and after, is that all electronic? Um, the records do exist. I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think, that's a really good idea, actually. I'm going to have to think about how we can implement that. Cause our, but, uh, uh, the, the records exist, but I don't think they, the data has been pulled out for that particular purpose, as far as I'm aware. Hmm, because our Department of Natural Resources has uh, some of it electronic. I know that when an interdisciplinary team goes out and does the assessment that they, you know, they probably have paper and and have it in a written record, and I've seen yeah. those, but I was wondering for the future if there's any way to track the fish before and after culvert replacements. That's, uh, sometimes we are able to um, do that type of work now, you know, like sometimes there, there's culverts that we replaced five or ten years ago that need rehabilitation for whatever reason, so they need a repair or whatever, and we're able to see the different species. I've come across one project where we've been able to do that. They so, you know on a large scale, that, that would be really interesting. Um, yeah. I think yeah. I think but that's the data, the data exists. There's so much data out there. Yes. Or what to do with it, you know. So that's what happened when I started thinking about my business and how I wanted to be was there's all this research that's gone on and I think historically people who research or publish their research never really knew how to promote it. Mhm. And so that's my my whole thing and my mantra this year has been there's no lack of knowledge, just a lack of asking for it. Yeah, and knowing how to make it accessible to a wider audience, you know? Yeah. Because, there, you know, if you think of research from an academic point of view, you know, <laughs> is your typical public layperson going to know how to read an academic research paper? Probably not. And Does so... That mean that the, the knowledge that's in that paper is any less valuable? Definitely not. Something that I, I teach people to do is to take the jargon out of their social media posts or if they want to provide uh, words that they may know, 
and then they would need to describe them to the the people and in uh, the world of social media we're having to do short form and so it was really funny one time i was consulting uh some people on how to use instagram and i was teaching them how to do their bio and i told them it was only 150 characters and they were like yeah but how do we put our mission statement in in that (laughs) and i told them you don't have to be grammatically correct and they were just shocked they were they they were like well how do we you know word our our mission and i i said you can do uh you know a few words and uh kind of allude to what your mission is but if you keep people hanging then they're going to want to go to your either your instagram or your website to learn more and that's the point Mm -hmm. so it's kind of funny to uh yes go away from the even the different styles of writing uh chicago and apa and oxford like the the universities press into you and it's been interesting for me to just teach people that they don't have to do that on social media um and so you're right i've been removing the jargon and i consult and teach people purposely to not use acronyms yep and i i try and do that a lot too you know i try and strip out as much as I can and you know or even just it explain even if it's not strippable or you can't translate it you know then explaining simply what it is you know as much as possible exactly so well we're getting towards the end of the interview so I was going to ask you what are your extra activities that you do outside of work some of your hobbies and projects I've recently started doing nature walks or plant walks with local kids at a local conservation authority which has been a ton of fun you know teaching them about opposite versus alternate leaf arrangements now you're talking about simple versus compound leaves and then winter hits so i think the next one that we're going to do is actually be more like tracking and you know maybe a little bit winter tree idea but it, it's been a blast you know i had a friend who approached me and she asked if i could she she's like could you, you know, my son is really interested in plants and trees, and I know you love plants and trees, and would you, like, consider teaching him about plants and trees? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And she's like, we'll pay you. And I'm like, you'll do what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so she got a group of kids together, and we've been doing that ever since. And um, and I kind of fed into my, the second thing I'm working on right now is, you know, working with these kids. They, they can get it. They can if it's explained to them well in a way that they understand, they know, you know, I, they don't know that I'm teaching them how to run through a dichotomous key as an example with, you know, sort of the patterns that we're working on. But if it's made in a way that's accessible to them, they, they're so curious and passionate about what they're doing. And, you know, they can absorb a lot more, I think, than we give them credit for. Yes. It's just finding the materials out there that are accessible, but not, See, I think the challenge I've run into, because I've gone looking for, you know, I had, specifically I had one of the kids I was working with ask me for a field guide that he could use. You know, he's a smart seven-year-old, but, you know, he's seven. And he flipped through all the field guides that I had, and I brought, like, ten of them. (laughs) And he couldn't, you know, the words were too small, like, the text is too small, and the pictures were small, and... You know, he's like, I don't understand, and he was getting frustrated. And I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna write you a book. Aww. <laughs> just, 
working on a, uh, a field guide for kids. Um, I figured I'd start with, you know, basic plant families and kind of go from there. Um, and it might be a long-term project, but I'm hoping I can have something for them ready in the spring when we go back to do plant walks, you know, something that they yeah. could they could use to identify plants. Because, I, you know, and there are materials out there for kids in terms of um, field guides and stuff, but I, I don't like any of them. So I figured I'd write my own. If we were on video right now, people can't see my office, but we'd be looking at a bookcase full of field guides. I have all the Audubon guides, um, the field guides, the plant guides that she's speaking of. They've always been really important. And when you go to college in the outdoor industry, they're actually, what's interesting is I've wanted to, to read most of these books fully that were, you know, you're always told, here's your, here's your list of books, go to the bookstore. And in college, there's classes that you are like, oh, okay, I'll go pick that book up. But do you actually read it for life? Do you read it again? I think that there's some difference in the passion and in the field guides that we have that we go back and look for more information, especially when we're hiking or on nature walks. It's really interesting um, that you bring that up. And I think that it is a great idea to give the kids something to bite on and something to actually pique their interest in language that they understand. I think that's yeah. awesome. And I, and I believe, you know, like, and some of the, because I, there's kind of that scene anyway, and if anybody has any good resources, like feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear more. Um, like I've looked at the Peterson first guide, yeah. um, and they're decent. And I've and I've looked at sort of there seems to be stuff for like a a ten and up skills age group and a five and under age group. You know, I find the five and under way too simplistic because I know these kids can learn more. And then the stuff that's made for the older ones, you know, uses language that isn't necessarily. Yeah, I'm like I I think this is too complex. You know, in terms of just starting out with this vocabulary, like why can't you describe it in a way that simpler still gets the idea but yeah so definitely so is there anything else that you would like to add today or tips that you would like to tell our listeners i think the biggest thing for me has been open being open to um as wide being open to the opportunities that kind of come before you you know, you never know, like when I first was out west and considering what I was going to do, I thought for sure I'd be working in wildlife biology because that's what my training and was. And, you know, I got an interesting opportunity to go work in forestry and I, it wasn't necessarily, I'd always wanted to be a forester, but never had the opportunity. So I was like, this is interesting, you know, let's, let's see where it goes. Um, so saying yes has been my my biggest thing you know and talking to people and being passionate about what I'm doing and why and you know people will often present you with an opportunity and it's it's like you might not always lead to where you thought you were going but it brings a really interesting and fun experience that you can kind of add and skills you can add to your tool belt which I think is one of the biggest things moving forward with forestry professionals because you know there's a lot of forestry professionals who are retiring and a lot of us who are 
kind of upcoming, up and coming, don't necessarily have the traditional forestry background, you know, gone to school and then become a, a, a forester. So I think trying to get as much and as broad as an experience base as possible is important. I definitely agree with that full heartedly being open minded. If someone says, hey, do you want to go out on this hike? And if they have experience or not, I think what I've loved is just going out in nature with people and whether they know or not, I've, like you've been doing, been able to educate them on the trees, the plants, the the mycology around them and just open their eyes for just a moment to something different than the distractions that they're used to in their life. And so... Um, staying open-minded and also just going with the flow of what's offered or what's presented and for me talking forests wasn't necessarily what I thought it would be and I've just all of a sudden blossomed into something that is helping people and that's what I wanted to do but like you're saying I didn't necessarily know how but this podcast I think is going to be changing the lives of many people and you're right, just keeping an open mind, no matter where you go or where your path takes you is really important. Yeah. And saying yes, I think was the other key part for me, you know, even when I was, you know, really afraid of something and, and it's like, oh, you, you know, you really want me to do that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Definitely. And so, yeah, I've been excited to hear from you today and just really happy that we connected and that we're going to be able to um, talk to each other and get to know more about each other. And I'll post this on social media and we can share it with our Facebook friends and help other people learn about the differences and the, the challenges that we have in, in forestry and that we are thinking of the future and we're going to be sharing it with other people. Absolutely. So thanks for being on the podcast, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks.